0: Welcome to this episode of the Australian Naval History podcast series, where we examine important events in the Royal Australian Navy's history. Hello, I'm Professor Rob McLaughlin from the University of New South Wales campus at the Australian Defence Force Academy in Canberra. This series is produced by the Naval Studies Group at the University of New South Wales and is supported by the Royal Australian Navy's Sea Power Centre, the Australian Naval Institute, the Naval Historical Society of Australia and the Submarine Institute of Australia. In the last episode, we covered the Aryans' involvement in the Titanic Battle of Leyte Gulf. In this episode, we'll discuss the Royal Australian Navy's involvement in the final naval battle of the World War II Philippines campaign, the Battle of Lingayen Gulf in 1945. To discuss this story, I'm again joined by Rear Admiral Guy Griffiths, who served in HMAS Shropshire during the battles, Rear Admiral Alan Dutrois, who's on the line from Tasmania. Alan is a member of the Naval Studies Group. Dr. Carl James, who is head of the military history section at the Australian War Memorial, Vice Admiral Peter Jones, also a member of the Naval Studies Group, and Commander Greg Swindon, who has written a number of books on the service of the RAN in both world wars. Thank you all for joining me. First off, Carl, after the successful amphibious landings in Leyte Gulf, there was some discussion about leapfrogging the rest of the Philippines
1: and landing in Formosa, or, or Taiwan, That didn't happen. Why? Yeah, that's a good question, Rob. Now, we touched on this a little bit in our previous episode about the Battle of Leyte Gulf. Now, the Joint Chiefs of Staff had seen the need, really only seen the need for limited operations in the Philippines, with the Philippines acting as a stepping stone for a possible invasion of Formosa, or modern-day Taiwan. In September of 1944 though, the, oh, in September 1944 too, the plans to invade Mindero, so the southern part of the Philippines were postponed in order to bring up the invasion of the landing of Leyte. The question of the, of the subsequent Allied target, whether it should be Luzon or Formosa, was unresolved. Admiral Ernest King, on the Joint Chiefs of Staff, he favoured taking Formosa and he argued that it would sever Japan's contact with the territory it had occupied since 1942, that it would take the Allies closer, one step closer to Japan, which was the main game anyway, and he also argued that it would be useful to continue the successful leapfrogging or island-hopping strategy that had thus far been employed during 1944 now general douglas macarthur though so the allied supreme commander in the south pacific area so swpa now macarthur argued that the united states was on a bound to liberate the philippines and he is a very impassioned uh topic and advocate for that issue and he also offered to use the troops already employed in Leyte for the operations on luzon so this is a little bit of a bluff but basically saying i have the troops here in Leyte. we'll use them for luzon we won't require any additional assets now, there's also a, a real fear or a concern that the American casualties suffered in invading Formosa would be uh, prohibitive, and I use that quote in Airmark saying, yes, this is going to be a very costly operation. So it was also argued that the United States Army could not provide the additional resources necessary for an attack on Formosa until after the defeat of Germany. So again, delaying this potential operation. So, it wasn't until the end of September of 1944, or late September of 1944, and then, then after a private conference held between Admiral Ernst, uh, Chester Nimitz, select members of his staff, and Admiral King, the King was finally convinced that Luzon should be the next operation. So, qu- consequently, on the 3rd of October, the Joint Chiefs of Staff issued a directive giving MacArthur the go ahead for Luzon. And at that time, this operation was scheduled for December. MacArthur's staff though had already been working on plans for the amphibious landing um, and in the end MacArthur actually ended up pushing back um, operations for, for Luzon. Instead bringing forward the Mindoro operations to mid-December and then making the plan for the date for the invasion of Lingayan in Gulf in Luzon on the 9th of January 1945. The landings in Mindoro Island were required as a preliminary move in order to develop land base, or airstrips to provide land-based aircraft to give them a close air support operations for operations in Luzon. Alan Dutrois, can you
0: tell us a little about the objective and the plans for these new amphibious operations?
2: Well, after Leyte, the next amphibious landings were to be the Philippines' largest and most important island of Luzon. Instead of a direct landing in Manila Bay to retake the capital, it was decided to land on the central west coast in the relatively lightly defended Lingayen Gulf area. It was planned that there would be two landing sites at the southern end of the Gulf, one near the town of Lingayen, and the other near San Fabian. The intent was for four divisions of the US Sixth Army to land and push south, hopefully securing the good roads towards the capital Manila. In support of the operation, the US Pacific Fleet was assigned the task of destroying any enemy forces threatening interference and also preventing reinforcement of air units from Formosa.
0: So, Greg Swindon, we heard in the last episode that HMAS Australia was uh, badly damaged in the first suicide aircraft attack during the the Leyte Gulf engagement, yet she returned
3: to the battle. Can you talk about why? Yes, Australia was uh, hit by a single uh, Japanese aircraft in the late Gulf action, which killed thirty of her crew, including her commanding officer, and nearly uh, double that uh, number were wounded. And that's from a crew of uh, or ship's company of nine hundred personnel. So one in ten personnel on board became casualties. She was withdrawn. from the Philippines, uh, initially sent to Manus Island and then uh, sent on to Espiritu Santo in the New Hebrides, or what was now modern day Vanuatu, uh, for repair uh, and to receive uh, replacement personnel. A uh, new commanding officer, uh, John Armstrong, came in to receive uh, relieve uh, the deceased, uh, Captain Deshano uh, and more personnel came from Australia to uh, replace those who'd been killed or badly wounded and burned. Additionally, uh, while she was there, because it was planned that she would return to the Philippines, she was fitted with more anti-aircraft guns, uh, particularly the 40, 60mm Bofors guns and the 20 minute, 20mm Aura uh guns as well. Her radar had been damaged uh, at late Gulf, so a specialist team had to be flown from Australia to uh, repair that. Radar was obviously going to be highly essential uh, for spotting uh, Japanese aircraft coming in. So with replacement Uh, Captain replacement crew, uh, repairs being done, additional uh, anti-aircraft weapons uh, being installed. Uh, The crew were also allowed to uh, uh, undertake rest and recreation uh, and she was managed to uh, be ready again uh, despite the damage and uh, sailed on the 30th of November to return to the war zone. Uh, She spent uh, Christmas Day in, um, at Manus Island, so the, the crew were happy. They had Christmas Day in port uh, with a beer issue, mm-hmm. uh, and then she arrived back in A Gulf on the 1st of January 1945, ready to rejoin uh, the Allied task group.
0: Peter Jones, in the last episode, you mentioned how Commodore John Collins was seriously injured during the attack on the Australia. Can you tell us a bit about his replacement?
4: Yes, yeah, so his relief was uh, Harold Farncombe, and um, as I mentioned in the Previous episode, uh, Harold was uh, slated to be John Collins' relief in the normal course of events, Um, and as also mentioned, he had been appointed as commanding officer of HMS Attacker, which was in the Mediterranean. And in fact, they'd uh, just they'd completed the landings, amphibious landings in southern France. The ship had uh, gone back to the UK, and so Farncombe flew from the UK. Um, and joined the the repaired HMS Australia um, uh, before the Lingayen Gulf operation. Um, Frank had spent most of his time in the war in command of uh, of ships. Um, he'd since the beginning of the war he'd commanded the cruisers Perth, Canberra, Australia, um, and then Attacker. Um, his nickname in the navy was uh, Fearless Frank. Um, And he was, in my view, to prove uh, in this operation to be the REN's uh, greatest task group commander. His courage, um, tactical skill and strategic grasp was outstanding. Um, One of his staff officers was Lieutenant Commander George Fowle. And he uh, later wrote, um, he was a demanding boss but great to work with in the sense that he had such a quick brain but was no diplomat. He couldn't suffer fools at all, let alone gladly. An acquired taste, H.B. Farncombe, but once you had it, you couldn't miss it. Our lot would have followed him anywhere.
0: Carl James, as with the Battle of Leyte Gulf, the forces assembled for this operation uh, on both sides
1: were... were in order, they were massive. Can you provide some details as to the orders of battle for both sides? Yeah, I think massive is a a very appropriate adjective in this instance, Uh, because even though the Japanese had suffered very heavy losses at Leyte Gulf, they were still thought uh, capable of mustering four battleships, seven aircraft carriers, nine cruisers, 35 destroyers, and more than 50 submarines. Now, these ships were thought to be in Japanese waters and around Formosa. Likewise, there were still more than 70 operational Japanese airfields across the Philippines and they had, well it was sort or estimated, 500 fighter aircraft and over 330 bombers, plus another 200 types of other aircraft. Now these air assets could be reinforced with other Japanese aircraft from Formosa, Hian, China and the Netherlands East Indies. The Americans were also estimated that the Japanese could stage 300 fighters and 150 bombers from Japan through Formosa uh, and be available for the defense of Luzon within four to seven days of an Allied landing. Now, in addition to just these ships and aircraft, Gen- uh, General Yamashita, the, the line of Malaya from early 1942, so Yamashita, he had some 280,000 Japanese soldiers or Japanese troops on Luzon. So large Japanese force, quite a large and formidable enemy disposition. Uh, and this really s- constitute a very formidable threat. Now, the American's vice-admirals, Thomas Kincaid, Daniel Barbie, and Theodore Wilkinson, now, they are concerned by exposing the Zon um, attack to this prolonged Japanese surface and air assaults. The American admirals believe that Japanese may use their f- asked surface forces to conduct hit-and-run raids and attack the American transport groups. And so the Japanese menace was still incredibly, incredibly real. Now for Vice Admiral Kincaid's 7th Fleet, from, so from the American point of view, his fleet was indeed massive. Now on the 1st of January, 1945, his force comprised some 650 ships, landing craft, miscellaneous small craft, as well as uh, other escort forces. So more specifically, it included six battleships, 18 escort carriers, 10 cruisers, 41 destroyers and 20 destroyer escorts. Now this allied armada was disposed into four distinct groups. The first was a minesweeping and hydrographic group, which included the frigate HMAS Gascoigne and the Sloop Waringa um, sorry. The second group was a bombardment and fire support group, so these were battleships Escort carriers and cruisers and included HMS Shropshire and Australia, as well as the the destroyers HMS Oranta and Warramunga. The third and largest group consisted of the close covering group, and this included Vice Admiral Barbie's San San Fabian attack force, so one of the invasion assault forces, while the fourth group and the last group included the transport ships and the Australian landing ship infantry, so the SLIs, uh, HMS Menorah, Kniembla and West Australia uh, for Vice Admiral Wilkinson's Lingane Attack Force.
0: Greg, Swindon on the 1st of January 1945, the first ships of this uh, large invasion force left Admiralty Island bound for Lingayen Gulf. Now, Carl's mentioned briefly uh, Warrego and Gascoigne had a role there. Can you tell us a bit more about that?
3: Again, the unsung work of the uh, mine sweeping and uh, hydrographic force. Uh, in order to get your uh, your landing force ashore, you need to make sure that they can get to the beach safely. Uh, so both Warrigo, which was a sloop, and Gascoigne, which was a, a frigate, were involved in, uh, you know, Laying uh, boys marking the boat lanes that the landing craft would take, uh, searching for underwater hazards such as uh, coral outcrops or rocks, and also checking to see whether the area had been mined. So before any of the troops uh, disembarked from the uh, the landing ships, the uh, the hydrographic force mine sweeping force had to go in ahead, uh, and. Uh basically checked that the waters were safe to get them there. And of course they came under fire uh, from uh, Japanese forces uh, on a number of occasions. Uh, at one point one of the American ships that was uh, present, the, the USS Brooks, the destroyer, uh, was badly damaged by a kamikaze and Gascoigne uh, was used to tow her out of the danger zone and she was uh, screened or protected by Waramunga and Warrego during that activity.
0: Guy Griffiths, HMA Shropshire's gunnery officer, your comrade, was Lieutenant Commander Braces Brace Girdle. Can you tell us what he was like?
5: Well, Braces was uh, an outstanding character uh, during his time in Shropshire. Uh, he had been guns of the cruise of Perth in the Mediterranean in, in 1942, and so he was well-tuned in and experienced in uh, defending against air attacks in the MED, where he had a lot of attention from the Luftwaffe. Uh, he had, I believe, selected uh, some members that he wanted on board, also experienced from uh, HMAS Canberra, and uh, he also brought with him people from HMAS Perth, uh, key gunnery people for turrets, and cetera, and control positions and so on and guns crew. <clears throat> Braces had a great sense of humor. He was um, he was quite the uh, obvious leader of the gunnery team. But he wasn't leading from a, a remote position. Gun um, Braces was also a member of the gunnery team and he was always willing to discuss a problem. He was not dogmatic but he Was firm in his decisions to what you might say achieve the best result. He was held in high esteem by the ship's company, uh, many of whom maintained contact uh, for many years after WW2. Braces, who was strongly supported by Captain Nichols, was always remembered for his initiative and his ability to negotiate uh, the change for our close-range AA weapons from the uh, 20mm Ehrlichons, which we had out of the dockyard in Chatham, uh, changed for 40mm Bofors guns. And uh, the fitting of these 13 of these uh, mountings on the upper deck of Shropshire. And as one might say, this upgrading did not go through any bureaucratic process. Also, it was Braces really, who developed the use of the eight-inch turret in firing a barrage in their defense. Um, Eventually, fine-tuned it down to firing at two ranges, a a barrage to explode at 6,000 yards and another at 2,500 yards. It was very effective. It... um, May not have shot down a lot of uh, aircraft, but it certainly did deter them. And in fact, we got ourselves on uh, Tokyo Rose's news to um, the world in that we were using flamethrowers to at aircraft. Well, of course, that was the the uh, the burst of the um, eight-inch guns. So the use of the eight-inch in air defense and the uh, upgrading of the 40 millimetre loaders, both as manned by expert crews, uh, could really be identified, I think, as the reason why Shropshire was billed a, uh, as a lucky ship, because we uh, escaped damage and casualties for the period um, N-43 to uh, N-45. So braces was the uh, the master gunner of Shropshire, so to speak, and uh, we'll always be remembered as such. Uh, We always reckon back, looking back, a few um, survivors still left, and um, we always remember the good work he did.
0: Alan Dutois, let's focus for a moment on the the Japanese air attacks against the advancing Armada as it sailed up the West Luzon coast. Can you tell us a bit about what happened?
2: Yeah, well, on the 5th of January, the 875 ship invasion fleet, and we talk about significant number of ships, that certainly was, as they steamed towards the Lingayan Gulf um, to be able to uh, do the assault, um, this included Shropshire, Arunta, Warramunga, Gascoyne and, and Warrigo. And they were followed by the, the San Fabian group, which included the Cruiser Australia. And in the afternoon, as the ship steamed past Manila Bay, uh, J- Japanese aircraft tried to break through the 60-odd American fighters that were protecting the Armada. And that was mostly successful, till about 5 p.m. in the afternoon when uh, one of the aircraft got through uh, and narrowly missed runter, causing some minor damage uh, from a bomb that fell close by. And soon afterwards, six Japanese valves flying very low evaded American fighters passed the CERN of Australia and one of them slammed into the escort carrier, USS Manila Bay, very appropriately named uh, considering they were going past Manila Bay. The fires in the carrier were quickly extinguished and should be able to resume flying operations within a couple of days. Despite considered anti-aircraft fire, another six valves after gaining height executed a steep dive and hit HMOS Australia portside and midships. But we'll talk a bit more about Australia's damage uh, later on. The following day saw pre-landing bombardment uh, commence within the Lingayan Gulf itself. Australia was not assigned specific targets, but rather was to respond to any Japanese fire on new targets of opportunity. And to the west, Shropshire was assigned targets on Poro Point. And throughout the day, uh, low-flying kamikazes came from the coast to attack the ships pretty relentlessly. I think probably one of the most uh, notable was uh, at midday, the battleship USS New Mexico, which was steaming ahead of Shropshire, was attacked by a kamikaze. Although Shropshire managed to take off its tail, the aircraft still struck the, uh, the battleship's bridge. It killed 31 men. Including the ship's captain, and interestingly, also Winston Churchill's liaison officer to General MacArthur, Major General Herbert London. And very lucky to escape injury on the day was the new Commander in Chief of the British Pacific Fleet, Admiral Sir Bruce Fraser, who was on board to witness operations.
0: Greg Swindon. Can you tell us a bit more about the roles that the Australian cruisers and destroyers fulfilled and how they fared in the battle?
3: Well, as Alan's already uh, mentioned, uh, the the two heavy cruisers, Australia and Shropshire, were generally involved in naval gunfire support, uh, firing at targets as required. And the destroyers also uh, undertook some naval gunfire support activities, but were mainly there to protect the larger ships against the the incoming kamikazes. and. Australia uh, fared quite badly, Uh, a number of kamikaze attacks or zombies as they were called by the Australian sailors uh, took place and she was struck on five separate occasions. In the end uh, Australia suffered 44 dead and 67 wounded, again almost one in ten of her ship's company were killed or wounded during that activities. she was then uh, withdrawn uh, and sent uh, back to Australia uh, for repair. Uh, Shropshire, the lucky ship, uh, she was near missed on a number of occasions by uh, Japanese kamikazes. No casualties. A runter, one of the destroyers, uh, she was hit. Uh, by kamikaze which came in again very very low uh, a lot of uh, ammunition expended in trying to shoot that aircraft down but she stuck uh, struck the uh, the stern of the ship uh, causing uh, holes and damage and two personnel were killed warramunga uh, unscathed uh, by the kamikazes uh, west australia uh, which was carrying uh, u.s troops at the time uh, was near-missed by a kamikaze that was shot down by her gun crews and fell slightly astern of the ship. Uh, Canimbala and Manura, also carrying uh, uh, US troops, uh, were heavily involved but fortunately no casualties there and again no casualties in Warramunga or Gascoigne. But certainly uh, the kamikaze attacks on the Australian ships were quite intense.
0: So Guy, having been through Beta Gulf and you've talked a little about the preparations that Shropshire made for, uh, for Lingayen. What did you and Shropshire do differently this time round in relation to the air threat?
5: Well, as a background, uh, before the op uh, to Lingayen, uh, we were informed by the captain and um, also briefed by the bra- uh, braces, the gunnery officer, about the uh, expect greater resistance and uh, counterattack by the enemy. Uh, guns used to get all the gun screws together on the four-inch deck. And his uh, phrase always remembered that we're <coughs> heading into tiger country. We need greater alertness, determination, discipline, and gun drill, and so on. And, of course, different to Lady, we had that, um, they had the 40-millimetre, guns, close-range guns, uh, yet untried, but uh, nobody doubted it was all going going to be better than having 20-millimeter Ehrlichon. We would continue uh, with the 18th barrage, as we started in late It would be further tested. Um, If the lookouts could have opened their eyes any wider, they had to in um, in the Lingayen. Operation, and um, so on. So, it, it, it's just a general idea that we had to improve our overall capability, which had been tested at Lady. A couple of things that I'd like to mention, um, started in Lady and continued in Lingayen, was our radar air warning. It uh, had been very, very successful at Lainty, with many kind words from U- United States commanders. And uh, we certainly had to, because of the, our capability and the long range detection of incoming attacks, um, we were able to do that uh, much beyond the capability of the American ships. And uh, this was. Uh, the radar, whole radar system was uh, so well maintained by Lieutenant Brian Castles, who was the actual specialist, radar specialist, and he had a maintenance team. Many a thing, I think he picked them out of Sydney University or somewhere, but uh, they all really worked hard, and I don't think it was ever down and a casualty. So, um, in addition to the radar team working on the maintenance side, we had um, the long-range air warning team under Lieutenant Ron Major and um, his uh, ability from the way he would uh, uh, tested and trialed the radar in peacetime um, situations. Um, He was able to broadcast vital information to the whole force about attacking groups coming in. And this, of course, enabled the carriers supporting uh, the landing to um, direct their patrols to intercept the incomers. And it was all a great success. It it was reported back to the top end of um, the U.S. Navy about that. And I also commented on the ability to, uh, on our ability to use the main armament as we did against aircraft. So we really didn't do anything differently, except we'd added the 40-millimeter AA guns. Of course, we still had the expert group of four-inch, 8 four twin mountings of four-inch midships, and they did outstanding work. So. We did more of the same and just tried to do it better. It wasn't anything really different. It was an updating, upgrading.
0: <laughs> well, Carl James, let's uh, shift your focus focus ashore for a moment. And can you tell us how the amphibious operation proceeded?
1: Yeah, overall, the amphibious operation proceeded quite well. So the invasion took place on the 9th of January. Uh, it was codenamed S-Day. And before the invasion had taken place, he had three days of pre-invasion bombardment. So it was pretty intense scene. Now, the beaches selected for the landings were spaced along the south and the southeastern shores of the Gulf. Vice Admiral Wilkinson's 3rd Amphibious Force, or the Lingayen Attack Force, which included the Menorah, Canimbla and West Australia, now, they were carrying the 37th and the 40th Divisions, and they were to take Lingayan, while Vice Admiral Arby's 7th Amphibious Force, or the San Fabian Attack Force, uh, carried the 6th and the 43rd Divisions, and they were to take San Fabian. During the night of the 8th and the 9th of January the Lingayen and the San Fabian attack forces entered Lingayen Gulf. The bombardment group was likewise off of the invasion beaches just before dawn on the 9th of January and at 7am the American battleships opened fire. Australia, Shropshire and other ships opened fire a little bit later around about um, 8.30 or 9.30 a little bit later and the Gulf was was soon filled with small boats and landing craft. Leading officers, cook, leading officer's cook, Joseph Campbell, was in the destroyer Warrego, and he later described the 9th of January as a date that will live in the memories of, of many of us. And I quote, because it's quite a long passage, but it's quite good and very evocative. The sight that met our eyes was astounding. Lingayen Gulf was packed with landing craft of all descriptions. They were They were in their hundreds. The battleships were already hammering the beachheads. Assault ships unloading their troops into waiting barges, with um, sped shoreward, landing dock ships sunk stern first as they flooded with their central compartments. The lock gate opened, or the lock gate was lowered, and outsped the ducks and barges to throngs already on their way to the beach. The bay was a mass of moving craft. Now, Commander Alan Green was an Australian R.N. officer who also participated in the landing as an observer. And he and Disembarked from Menorah and afterwards gave a very evocative description of the assault, and I quote, All boats were lowered and combat troops embarked without mishap, and as the boats moved inshore, practically the entire countryside in the vicinity of the beach was sh- shrouded in smoke with the exploding shells of the naval bombardment. My chief impression as we approached the beach was the seemingly ever-increasing thunder of the rocket bombardment. All the waves with landing craft approached the beach with admirable station keeping as we neared the shore. There was no opposition fire whatsoever. Now the first assault waves hit San Fabian and the Lingayne beaches around about 9.30am. More American soldiers and equipment continued to land during the morning and throughout the day, and San Fabian was reported captured at midday. So, Greg
0: Swindon, how was Australia seemingly able to bounce back after each of these attacks?
3: Yes, well, she was quite badly damaged and uh, had a number of casualties, but she had a very, very good ship's company. They were well trained. Uh, they'd been in action in several times in the past uh, and they were prepared to defend their ship. Uh, they were well led by their officers and particularly by the new commanding officer, uh, John Armstrong. Uh, the ship was exceptionally well built, Uh, and so she was able to uh, take quite a lot of damage. At points the Japanese aircraft uh, were exploding uh, against the side of the ship. Yes, holes were being uh, created. Uh, At one point she took on water and had a five degree list, but damage control kept the ship afloat and more importantly kept her eight inch guns available for naval gunfire support. So well-trained and capable personnel, well-led, a well-built ship. Uh, but she did suffer significant losses particularly amongst the uh, four-inch gun crew and the anti-aircraft crews so eventually when she was withdrawn it was due to that damage and the effect and the effect that uh, there were no replacements available so she was less able to defend herself uh, but with a significant number of casualties over hundred killed and uh, nearly uh, twice that number wounded Uh the effects after the war uh, with amongst the Australia's crew did display quite a lot of post traumatic stress syndrome. Uh, so they were more than capable of keeping their ship going during the uh, Lingayen Gulf action, but the uh, the cracks were going to start appearing after the war.
0: Carl James, what toll were the kamikazes taking on the rest of the fleet?
1: Yeah, well, while the Australia seems to have been deliberately targeted, uh, many other Allied ships in the fleet also came under attack, including the Australian LSIs. Knimbler, for instance, suffered a near miss, while West Australia, which was also nearly hit, shot down a Japanese aircraft. Now, it's not surprising that the effectiveness of kamikaze tactics have been scrutinised and debated over the years. Indeed, Vice Admiral Sir John Collins, who himself been wounded in a suicide attack at Leyte Gulf, later wrote that, later wrote that the kamikazes were frightening but ineffective. And I quote, "...a desperate last throw by an enemy who were callously extravagant with, of lives and material." And with no armour-piercing capability... Kamikazes damaged the superstructure they hit. They caused local casualties, but they sank relatively few ships. So Collins thought the greatest danger from kamikaze strikes was actually fire and secondary explosions. Now, described as suiciders and zombies, as well as kamikazes, there were numerous accounts from American and Australian sailors describing the fear and shakiness, to use a quote from the time, uh, experienced during these attacks. And indeed, Vice Admiral Tom's Kincaid reportedly remarked himself that anyone who is not frightened by kamikazes is dumb, and for good reason. During the Philippine campaign and the rest of the Pacific War, kamikaze attacks cost the Allies at least fifty-five ships sunk, with a hundred and seven lost to the Allied war effort, and another eighty-five suffering heavy damage or heavy casualties. So, continuing, Carl, the
0: fleet has survived the air attack. Naval gunfire support's been successful, the divisions have been landed, and some of the early objectives have been achieved. Can you talk us through the remainder of the Operation ashore?
1: Well, yeah, it's quite a long, um, with all these tasks, quite a long campaign. So the American forces came ashore on the 9th of January, uh, taken first day, been incredibly successful, and within the first few days, the of the landing some 175,000 American soldiers from the U.S. 6th Army had pushed inland towards, towards Manila. Now, initially, these American troops meant only limited opposition, and as the American naval historian Samuel Morrison noted, the initial amphibious landing was, and I quote, almost too easy. The soldiers were given no foretaste of the rough days ahead. But General Yamashita had only been assembling his Japanese forces for a bloody counterattack and the fighting on Luzon became a bitter hard slog. The scale of the ground campaign only escalated with time. Another American amphibious landing southwest of Manila occurred in mid-January, followed by an airborne operation with paratroopers, uh, which which took place closer to Manila at the end of the month. Now Manila was not cleared of Japanese personnel until March, while Japanese Marines fought on Fort Drum, a fortified island in Manila Bay near Corregidor until April. Ultimately, 10 US divisions and five independent regiments fought in Luzon, making the fight for the island the largest American campaign of the Pacific War. Now, the Americans suffered over 45,000 casualties, so that's killed and wounded, and over over 120 Filipino civilians died um, either as fighters or as guerrillas or civilians during the action, so over 120,000 Filipinos, and more than 200,000 Japanese died, before we end, I would
0: ask each of you your final thoughts on the Battle of Lingayen Gulf and the Philippines campaign. And, Guy Griffiths, any final thoughts on the Battle of Lingayen Gulf?
5: Um, I don't think so. I think I probably covered them all. Um, it certainly demonstrated that you need a superior force, which we had. The Japanese Navy had really faded from view at that time. And under the air cover that we we uh, took with us, uh, and that supplied by other u s carrier forces, enabled the operation to go ahead. Um, it's um, I don't think enormous determination and uh, courage showed by uh, ships of every size, and of course, in the middle of all this we we were saved from uh, one kamikaze dropping vertically uh, uh, onto Shropshire. It was uh, blasted out of the sky by Gascoigne. Gascoigne and, uh, and Warrego were not to be forgotten in the landing at uh, Lady and at uh, Lingayen. And Gascoigne saved our life. In fact, it was so directly above us that. Uh, bits of the aircraft fell down and amusing signals were exchanged about, they you've shot it down, will you please come and clean up the mess? <laughs> but uh, it was terrific. And also, of course, we had a, an outstanding reaction from one of our gun captains, uh, Roy Kazali who uh, was maintaining his pom-pom mounting, eight-barrel pom-pom mounting, suddenly spotted a fellow diving at us Switched around, aimed, fired, and first disintegrated the aircraft. That's another monumental save at the time, because after that time, nobody had seen him. They were quite difficult to see, these uh, incoming aircraft. Uh, This is not an impression of Lingayen, but just a story. At one stage, I can remember a zero coming down from aft and I, all I could see was the roundel of the engine and the two wings. So there was no fuselage, fuselage in view. And so um, I thought, well, this one's going to come uh, come inboard. Well, fortunately, after about five or ten seconds, maybe only five, uh, I could see his starboard fuselage. So uh, that meant that he actually wasn't going to come directly into the ship. He only he passed what? maybe 30 feet to the port side before he crashed into the sea on the starboard side. So you do get some close calls occasionally, but uh, uh, you gain confidence as as the day goes on. So um, impressions of Lingayen: it was a great event, successful event. Uh, Many were damaged and a few people were lost. Here and there. And um, dear old Australia retired after the 9th of January after that fifth kamikaze. And uh, she looked quite broken with a bent funnel or two and um, uh, holes in the one water side. But it was a great, tremendous effort.
2: Alan Dutoy. Well, if we look at the the use of kamikazes, I just want to step us forward for a number of decades to 1967 to the uh, Arab-Israeli war. with The first surface-to-surface missile sinking of the Israeli destroyer lot. and then later to the Falklands with the very successful exorcist attacks on British ships. I think that the kamikazes were the forerunners of, of those surface-to-surface missile attacks. The only difference, it was a manned missile full of fuel with explosives, and it had the same effect on ships.
1: Carl James? Um, in many ways, I think it's unfortunate that the depth and the variety of Australia's contributions to the Philippines campaign is really little appreciated today. Uh, this, pa- this participation well illustrates the diversity of the Australian experience in the Second World War. And while we've been concentrating on the involvement of the RAN, uh, the Royal Australian Air Force was also committed to the operations and there are a handful of individual soldiers, Australian soldiers, who also took part, and in the end, some 4,000 Australians fought Um, in the Philippines to free the Philippines from Japanese occupation and nearly 100 Australians died in that process. So I think in many ways it's a, I won't say it's a forgotten campaign, but it's certainly a little appreciated campaign um, and it makes us just, I think we should ask new new questions.
3: And finally, Greg Swindon. Well, the Australians did particularly well, uh, even though they were small in numbers compared to the US forces that uh, were committed. Uh, Admiral Kincaid, after the, uh, the action, uh, wrote back to uh, the United States uh, praising the Australians' uh, activity, and particularly HMAS Australia, which he stated received two minor and three major hits from enemy suicide planes. Despite the resulting damage and casualties, the fire schedule was executed in a very satisfactory manner. Her performance during the entire operation was excellent.
4: And to conclude, Peter Jones... Yes, I think the Philippines' campaign was the Arian's finest hour. Um, when you look at the heroics of HMAS Australia um, to remain in action after first the Kamikaze attack and later Gulf, then another five in Lingayen. And I think to take it at that personal level, when you think of particularly the, the hits on the, in the four-inch four gun deck which wiped out crews, and then to think of the bravery of the sailors who then had to go and replace their dead comrades. It, that's uh, really something quite um, quite impressive. Um, the performance of HMAS Shropshire, both in terms of radar detection and her very impressive and innovative air defence, I think rates as one of the great achievements by any REN ship.
0: Sadly, that's all we have time for. My thanks to Guy Griffiths, Alan Datoire, Carl James, Peter Jones and Commander Greg Swindon. This is the last episode of Season 4 of the Australian Naval History Podcast Series. Thank you for joining us and for more information on the Australian Naval History Podcast Series, simply search for Naval Studies Group in your search engine. We look forward to you joining us again in 2020. Goodbye for now.